Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible. All I ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Now let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. My guest today is John Brown from Monuments, Flux Conduct, and RiffHard.com, which, by the way, is a site that we at URM created with him all about rhythm guitar. And it's because I think that John Brown is one of the very, very best and on James Hetfield level rhythm guitar players in the world. He has the art of the riff down. And riffs are central to heavy music. Like without a riff, you ain't got shit. And he is the master of it. On top of just being a really cool guy, I love having people on who have such a bleeding edge and refreshing musical brain. So I introduce you, John Brown. John Brown, welcome back to the URM podcast. Hi, Al. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right, yeah. Yeah, not too bad, actually. I've just had a whole day of doing one-on-ones for Riff Hard. So, yeah, I've been streaming all day, and here I am again. <laughs> so how, how bad's the uh, lockdown for you? Uh, I've been stuck indoors now for three weeks, and... It's not really too dissimilar from what I would actually be doing. What is different is I can't even just like go out and go get a coffee or anything like that. So that's the only thing that's making me go a little bit crazy. Uh, but yeah, it, streets are dead. There's no cars on the road. Yeah, I guess it's pretty similar in, in what, Atlanta? Yeah, it's like a ghost town out here. Um, I had to go out to pick something up through a drive through It was kind of eerie out here. You guys have drive throughs still open. Like in UK, we McDonald's is closed down. Well, not that. It was a pharmacy. Um, oh, that's all right, yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm not going in anywhere. Fuck that shit. Hell no. <laughs> I, I don't believe in that social distancing, six feet apart stuff. I'm not getting anywhere near people. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I'm not looking to get the plague. I mean, if it stays on metal for, I think it was like, what, a week? So if I use coins, that means that there could be coronavirus on it. So I don't really want to go outside either. Someone's handle on their car. Oh, yeah, you guys, you have coin system over there. You guys have coins too, right? Quarters and dimes. Yeah, but they're not really taken seriously over <laughs> here. Whenever I go to Europe or the UK, like, coins are... A real thing and blows my mind like why 
you guys pride yourselves on being so much more advanced and smart than the U.S., then why the fuck are you still using coins? I mean, why are we using paper money anyway? This all numbers on the screen, right? <laughs> yeah, you know what? I've uh, I barely ever ever use cash. The only time I actually ever have it is to like tip somebody at the airport or something. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean, we don't tip people, so there's not really any money. So there's not really re any reason for me to carry any money, unless someone's stuck in like the 1970s and don't have a card machine, which actually happens more often than you would think it should. Do you guys have a card machine at the Monuments merch booth? Uh, yes, we do actually. How often does it get used as opposed to cash? It gets used quite a lot now. It didn't in the beginning, but now it does because you know people generally just don't need to carry cash on them. They're just more interested in just using a card. That's interesting to me because I keep hearing from European URM customers that uh, having a card is not like they'll get pissed that that to pay with a card sometimes and they'll say things like we're not used to having cards and it's like really in in certain countries yeah like the netherlands they don't have a card that you can use outside of the netherlands it's kind of limiting <laughs> it's like having a bank card you know like you can get those like savings cards where you can't actually yeah. use them yeah it's kind of like that i've never understood those but in germany there's a lot of bars that still don't take card. There's a lot of like uh, corner shops that don't take card. Fucking step into the future. <laughs> I I just don't understand why a business in this day and age would limit the way that they can get paid. Well, I went to China in uh, in October just before this whole thing happened, and I couldn't use my card anywhere because they have a system beyond having a credit card. What are they chipped? It's not chipped, but it's like you have an app on your phone and you use that. Well, we have something like that, like Apple Pay, for instance. Well, of course, yeah. But, I mean, you, you, you can still use your card, though. Yeah. Well, I literally couldn't use my card. So every single time I wanted to go and get, like, a coffee or something, the guy I was with had to pay for it because it's like I couldn't, I couldn't even take out cash or anything. It was a bit weird. So Apple Pay and stuff is linked to your cards. So it is basically like having your cards just in your phone. But in China, yep. it's not it's like a whole other thing. I'm not sure what the system was, but it like it was kind of like QR codes. Okay. You know the the square codes yeah. that you get from like yeah. It's like that. <laughs> it was kind of strange, but So how did you pay him back? Uh I didn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> he just got you stuff. Yeah. All right, that's not so Thanks, Tony. That's not so bad. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out so how's Riff Hard going? Very, very good. Really busy. Lots of people really enjoying what we're doing over there, which is fantastic. Who'd have thought that people want to actually learn rhythm guitar? It's great. So yeah, shout out to everyone that's on Riff Hard, basically. Yeah. Yeah, so if you're not familiar with Riff Hard, this, I mean, we're not shooting a Riff Hard commercial or recording Riff Hard commercial right now, but just so that everyone understands what we're talking about. This is a site that we created together uh, me, Joey, Joel from URM, and John. That is exactly what it sounds like. Riff hard. It's about what we consider to be the most important aspect of playing guitar in heavy music, which is rhythms, because it's what you're hearing 90% of the time. I know that people focus on the sexy stuff, like leads, the flashy shit, but in reality, the stuff that's going to make or break the guitar playing or the guitar sound on the record is the rhythm. That's the meat and potatoes of everything. And it's just like undervalued and 
under-focused on. It's really interesting because when, when you go into a studio and the guitar player is actually good at rhythm, the engineer like has an overwhelming sense of relief because it's usually Fuck the yeah. part that is... <laughs> the, the the least uh, the least fun because a lot of people don't spend the time um, concentrating on rhythm guitar. So for you as a recording engineer of a band, if they're bad at rhythm, it is like the worst time you could possibly ever have, which was probably ninety percent of the time for you, right? <laughs> more like ninety eight percent. Yeah, definitely more like ninety eight percent. Remember that stereotype about lead guitar players who couldn't play rhythm. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. But you know what I think is interesting about that? Those lead guitar players who can't play rhythm are typically not that great at lead. They're like fake good. Uh, they can do a few, like they can wiggle their fingers real fast, but they're typically the ones that don't have good tone. They don't phrase musically well. They play really out of time. Uh, like they'll rush their leads. Then it'll be a lot more gibberish than real musicality. And the ones that I've known who are phenomenal lead players like James Malone or Jeff Loomis or Emil Wurstler, those types of guys, they are rhythm gods too. Exactly. And it's funny because you talk about people that like play fast. Have you ever had a guitar player in that tries to play 19 notes over 16 beats? <laughs> Man, it's really weird. Uh, we'll have this this thing that would happen. It's like they try to fit like 23 sixteenth notes in the space of 16 sixteenth notes. And the reason I want to clarify that is so that they don't think that it's like some weird subdivision, like hyper-advanced thinking. It's more like their brain is not connecting with the tempo of the music <laughs> and they kind of have zero concept of of that and it'll just be like a flurry of notes that make no rhythmical sense whatsoever it's like and it's very very different than someone who can play very fast and then go between you know like 16th notes and then 16th note triplets and then whatever you know like change it up to where it's more than 16 notes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just gibberish. Exactly. It's like, you know, when you've got a kick, when you've got a kick drum of a drummer and he adds in the sort of um, fast bit before the snare hits, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Stuff like that, you know, where it adds like a triplet subdivision or he doubles the uh, time. So instead of eights, it's sixteenths for like a short bit. But yeah, when it comes to, to guitar players, it is sometimes quite funny to see them try and fit this phrase in into a segment of time that doesn't actually work. That doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. I, I've often wondered where the hell that's coming from. Like, where is this idea coming from? Because it doesn't, I don't know. So timing, I, I've never been the best rhythm player, but I've always understood rhythm. You know, like I consider people like you to be the best rhythm players. Uh, that's I was never near that level, but well, thank you. I always had a solid foundation in what is in time and what's not in time, yeah. and what's uh, you know what uh, subdivisions are and what they aren't. And so it's a lot like the same thing as when you hear people doing harmonies that are just wrong. And I don't, I don't mean wrong as in like wrong 
music school wrong. I mean, wrong as in uh, just bad musical instincts. Like, how can you not hear that that's a terrible note to use harmonically? Like, <laughs> like, why are your ears not hearing this? I don't get it. Do you know what this brings me back to when we had that conversation about outsider music? And maybe this is like a deja vu of that in normal people. I say normal people, that's the wrong terminology, but you know what I mean, like (laughs) the subdivision thing and the bad harmonies. It is literally like outsider music, isn't it? It's the, the, well, lack of understanding is probably the wrong term, but you know what I mean. Yeah, so outsider music, that's like this album that came out like 20 years ago. There's more than one album, just so you know, for for later. Oh, more than songs (laughs) in the key of Z? There's another one? There, no, obviously that's the that's like a isn't that like a documentary? There's like multiple artists. Yeah, it's a compilation of outsider music. So, so outsider music, uh, if you've never heard of it, is music by people who have kind of no connection to society. In a way, they're like whatever like standard ideas of being in tune or being in time or how things are structured. Like they don't have any of that. And I don't, and I want to clarify, I don't mean the way that like, say for instance, uh, Indian music versus Western music are different. Cause like in Indian music, they'll use quarter tones. We don't really use quarter tones. They'll use very interesting uh, rhythmic subdivisions that aren't normal in the West. That's not what I mean. Cause they have a definite system of music in India. Um, it's just different. The outsider music is specific to that uh, those people like i'm talking about like mountain people from west virginia or something who never left the mountains who just started a band and were never taught that something is in tune or what it means to be in tune what's interesting about it is that they'll play it the same way every time so it's not a mistake like they're not fucking up that's how they hear it (laughs) it's mind-blowing there's one of those bands that was actually Kurt Cobain's like inspiration for Nirvana. I think the band was called The Shags. Oh yeah, they're on Songs in the Key of Z. Yeah, and it sounds completely mental. It's almost like a honky-tonk piano, but um, a complete musical. I mean, I understand why people like it. It is unique and different, but yeah. They just, like when people play the different subdivisions, for some reason it always takes me straight back to outsider music. Well, man, with the outsider music, when someone told me about it, what I was expecting was to hear some genius stuff that was just like from another planet. But that's not really what it is. (laughs) That's not really what it is. It's just kind of bad. Yeah. I mean, some of it's kind of funny, but... A lot of it's not funny and not entertaining. It's just fucked up. I mean, in every single genre of music in Western music, you know, I get the same feeling sometimes as what I got from that. So fair play, people like it. You know, anyone's allowed to like what they're like. But to me, it does great. It's like worse than listening to really dissonant music. Like, do you know anyone that listens to Schoenberg for fun? (laughs) I know people who listen to Schoenberg to sound smart. Yep. Now, you want to know something interesting about Schoenberg is that he didn't always write that fucking atonal bullshit. There was, <laughs> before, he, before he went nuts, and that atonal stuff was just mostly an academic thing, which I get. That's cool. He was trying to take things to another level. 
academically. So there was a, it was a scientific approach. But before that, he was a neo-romantic composer. And uh, like, for instance, check out Viclart de Nacht. Okay. You, you'll hear it's like late romantic era orchestral. It has a touch of that dissonance that was going to come, but not full on just <laughs> noise, <laughs> basically. There's actually a guitar player that writes in a very similar way, and his music is completely genius to me. Yeah, who? Ron Jarzenbeck of Blotted Science, oh, yeah. Spastic Inc., and Watchtower. And I think he might be the most underrated guitar player on earth. Like, the way he writes music, the way that it sounds, but he writes in the same way as Schoenberg, where it's, he has to play all 12 notes of the chromatic scale. Well, the thing is, I mean, there's ways to do it right. Stravinsky pulled it off. Stravinsky with the Rite of Spring, for instance, that's his most popular piece that's got lots of Incredible. atonal Incredible. shit. Yeah, the man, talk about rhythm uh, and subdivisions yeah. and meter changes. Holy shit. So there's a way to do it musically. I think also as far as bands go, I think Dillinger Escape Plan, kind of. To a degree, yep. To a, de to a degree. I don't know, honestly. I, actually, I don't want to put words in Ben's mouth, but I feel like it wasn't coming necessarily from the same place as Schoenberg, but still they were one of the first bands that really brought dissonant like chaos to heavy music. Definitely. I can't actually think of anyone before Dillinger, really. Maybe Watchtower with Ron Jarzenbeck had elements of it, but again, and then Dillinger, early 90s, right? Dillinger was late 90s. You know who did, actually? Mr. Bungle. And they did it I guess, on yeah. my Disco Volante album. Um, and then also in a lot of their interludes, Mr. Bungle did it. Dude, Mr. Bungle are a band that was so ahead of its time. I don't know if you listen to them at all, but... Uh, yeah, of course. Like, love is a fist. Man, <laughs> that band is pure fucking genius. And their level of musicianship was so far beyond what was good at that time. I'm sure you've noticed that you'll go back to records from like the early 90s or late 80s that were considered to be like the best musicianship wise. Yeah. And they're not so good, like out of tune, like bad vibrato, like not in time, like. <laughs> but I hear the Mr. Bungle stuff, and they're just as good as what's considered good now. Yeah. So what's interesting about them is that they're the ones who helped Dillinger get discovered. When Bungle reunited for their California tour in like 99, they took Dillinger's escape plan out. And I remember seeing that and was like, what the fuck is this? But that was the exact right audience for Dillinger to get exposed to, I think. Yep. I guess like uh, Primus is probably in that sort of realm a little bit as well. Kind of, yeah. But yeah, I mean like Dillinger, I mean, yeah, it makes sense. I didn't even know about that, but I know that, you know, uh, Mike Patton's song on the Dillinger Escape Plan EP. Yeah, that's, well, there's the link. I think that Patton was a fan of Dillinger. Uh, you know, Patton's got a label and stuff and... Ipecac, and I think... Of course, yeah. I don't know if the label was around back then, but obviously he's the kind of person who likes to foster new talent. So I'm pretty sure that he discovered this band and was like, I got to help these guys out. Makes sense. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, the first time I saw that band was with System of a Down of all bands. Who, Mr. Bungle 
or Dillinger? No, 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 Dillinger. I've actually never seen Mr. Bungle live. Okay, I'm just asking because I saw Mr. Bungle with System of a Down too. Oh, really? Yeah. That's quite an interesting lineup, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was Puya, Mr. Bungle, Incubus, and System of a Down. And dude, Mr. Bungle fucking annihilated Incubus. Like, <laughs> I felt really bad for them going on after that. I didn't feel bad for them with... Obviously, they were okay, but it just seems like so intimidating to have to follow that. I mean, to a degree, but if you've got to think about it like this, the way that the audience would see it is that most people in the audience for at least Incubus and System of a Down were probably more not instrumentalists. Like, obviously, some of them would have been, but Mr. Bungle is definitely a band for people that play instruments i would say i mean obviously yeah but the thing is their show was not like a dork show it was uh it was wild oh really yeah it was fucking wild they they were nuts and actually i think a lot of the antics that dillinger then carried on with like the breathing fire and like injuring your audience like that kind of stuff yeah that comes from the mr bungle type live show oh really yeah it was not like watching a bunch of music dorks just stand there and play impressive stuff it was like lots of stuff getting broken shit getting set on fire like chaos and a spectacle it was awesome okay i'm gonna have to check them out uh i'm gonna have to listen to it again obviously i know some of that music but i need to actually analyze it if you're giving me all this because that's one thing i've never done it's really it's really 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 advanced stuff okay I'll have to check it out. I haven't really heard anything that kind of matches up in that world ever. Yeah, I mean, I can't, like, you know, Patton is just so diverse as a vocalist, you know, between his three bands that he's done. There's some songs by Faith No More that I knew, and I just couldn't, I didn't know it was Faith No More, but I knew the song. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mr. Bungle, I've listened to one of the records, I can't remember what one it was, it's got like a face on the front of it, but Love Is A Fist is on that record which is an amazing riff but yeah i mean like thinking like to what i heard then and even with phantomass as well like any of those particular three bands it's it, i can't really think of anyone that sounds like any of them yeah so oh and by the way love is a fist that album has its own style you should listen to disco volante if you want the really weird shit I've probably listened to it. I've listened to a few of their records, definitely. But maybe I was too naive at the time to really take it in, which is probably what happened. Can you believe that that shit was on a major label? What? <laughs> it was on Warner Brothers. Wow. Yeah, what kind of a world? When this was, what, like late 80s, 90s? Yeah, on Warner Brothers. Wow. Maybe it was like his voice. I think what, what I think it was is that Mr. Bungle was Mike Patton's high school band. And... When Faith No More got huge, because they did, when they got fucking huge, I, I think that he used that as leverage to get them signed to Warner Brothers. That makes sense. But can you imagine a band like that get, being on a major label now? Yeah, I mean, it's in the 80s, that sounds like an advance. That sounds like a really good advance, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. It just sounds like something that would never happen anymore. No, I mean, like, uh, I, the way that labels have gone now, it's almost like they purposely don't really go for the bands that are sound are too far outside of what the norm is at the time. Are there any artists now that you think are, like, 
really pushing the envelope? Truthfully, I try not to listen to too much music and it's not because I don't enjoy it, it's because I'm scared of ripping it off. So when it comes to music listening for me, I tend to sort of listen to what I kind of already know. Interesting. Yeah, and it's not because I don't want to. It's like I, I used to love just searching out for new artists, but I definitely find now that it kind of has to be rammed down my throat a little bit because of me basically not wanting to rip it off because there's definitely elements of some inspiration maybe gone too far in some of our songs. <laughs> I think that's natural. I'll tell you this. Now, the further removed I am from making my own music, um, and producing music, the more I'm enjoying music as a fan again. It's something that, you know, you know how it is. Like, the more professional you go, like, the further into a career you get, I think that's totally normal. The less you take in music in some ways. I would agree with you. I was kind of concerned that I'd never like it again, but I like it like a fan now, which is really cool. It's actually really, really cool. What do you think about what bands are pushing the envelope like now The might be signed to a major label or just a label that you can think of. I think we're in a really interesting time period, and here's why. If you look at two of the biggest commercial artists of the past like five years, uh, Billie Eilish and 21 Pilots, both of them are okay, very yeah. dark, very honest, Not f they're not like cookie cutter at all. And I'm not an anti-pop kind of person. Like I think that pop has some of the best writing, best production, top-tier stuff. But it is pop, right? It is meant for mass consumption. Uh, so oftentimes it's about topics that I just can't relate to. Um, and it's, it's not made for me. Like I don't like happy music. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't. But Billie Eilish is completely unique. Um, I mean, maybe she's got some influences from like Lana Del Rey or whatever, but she's completely unique. She's fearless with her approach. I mean, that's not what you would think would become the biggest artist in the world. That's It's totally outside of the mold. And then 21 Pilots, there's a minute there where they were the like outside of like the Metallicas and stuff, like the biggest band in the world. And their shit is dark as fuck um, and unique. And I think that that says a lot about, I think that says a lot about where people's heads are at. So I think that, I think that if the top, top dogs are kind of groundbreakers, then that means that there's going to be a lot of groundbreaking happening. I think that Leprous, if they continue on this path they're on, they're going to do some incredible stuff. I don't know if you heard the most recent record they put out, but they kind of ditched metal. Yeah, I've not listened to the latest record, but I am familiar with the band. I've seen them live on multiple occasions. Okay, so you probably know them as like a heavy band, right? It wasn't like exceedingly heavy. Like I would say that it was, you know, it's progressive metal. Okay. That's what I remember about them. Like I don't remember there being that much screaming in it. Okay, the new album is not progressive metal. It's still progressive in that it's like goes through crazy time signature changes, like all the all the staples of progressive music, but it sounds more like a James Bond soundtrack meets Muse meets Tool meets like Duran Duran or something. 
It's very, very interesting. Is it kind of like Tesseract-y in a way? No, not at all. No? I don't think. Uh, Tesseract are still very grounded in in like rock. That's very true. So what, this is completely external to that? It's just different, man. It's something that I've never heard before. Okay. In rock, the only band I hear that really goes that far these days is Muse. Yeah. I think that they're, they've always been innovators in the 20 years that they've been around. They've been innovators. Uh, and I'm sure there's other stuff too, but that that's kind of what I've been on. That's been my kick lately. Okay, I'm going to have to check it out again. Um, I haven't listened to Leprous. It was probably a couple of albums have gone by since the last time I checked them out. I think um, I watched the drum playthrough, actually. They released a drum playthrough um, a couple of months ago. I checked that out and thought it was very cool. Fucking nuts. Yeah, it was nuts. And it was a take. It was actually a take. Imagine someone actually playing along. (laughs) Well, yeah, is it the one where he dropped the stick? I don't remember him dropping a stick. It was like a 13-minute long song. It was quite long. Okay. And it's all a live take. Yeah, I believe it. I know in one of those playthroughs he dropped a stick, which I think is really awesome that he kept it in. Yeah. Because it's just just a ballsy move. Yeah, I mean, it was tight tight as fuck. It was really good. Lots of dynamics as well insane groove yeah there was some really really cool grooves in there i remember yeah but again if i listen to it too much i will rip it off when you say rip it off you mean like accidentally without even trying right it'll just come out through you it might not even necessarily be that it sounds like it per se it's just like the chord progressions and the and the vibe of it will come out if that makes sense yeah so this is actually why I'm very against music school, like Berkeley. Okay. Is because I didn't want the Berkeley sound. It definitely is a thing, isn't it? Oh, it's most definitely a thing. I, I believe that we're all a product of our influences. So whatever it is that we take in is going to come out. We're going to shit it out. It's going to get digested and the poop will come out somehow. Yep. And, um, it, and there's no way around it. So if you're learning elevator music... If that's what you're fucking majoring in elevator music, <laughs> no matter what it is you want to do, <laughs> elevator music's what's going to come out. And so I felt like I had to drop out in order to, there were, I mean, there were career reasons, but also to just like protect my head from that. I think that's probably why I approach not really teaching any theory on Riff Hard of, as of yet. Mm-hmm. You know, because of that sort of situation, like, you know, your influence is pushed to other people. So if you tell someone that this is theoretically correct in theory, then they will follow that. I don't know if you've noticed that with guitar players, they kind of get told that they have to do this. So that's what they do. And it's the people with the lack of theory that are the ones that generally push more boundaries. Obviously, there are some anomalies to that theory, like Guthrie Govan, who seems to be able to just do the craziest thing and understand everything. But yeah, the Berkeley sound, I know exactly what you're talking about. I can actually hear it in my head right now. Yeah, it's, it sucks, doesn't it? Uh, I wouldn't say it sucks. I think that just maybe it's just because... Um, I hate it. <laughs> I mean, would you c- consider Dream Theater the Berkeley sound? To a degree, yes. However, keep in mind, they dropped out. That is very true. To a degree... But the thing about Dream Theater is that they're kind of the pinnacle of it. Okay. So to get as good as Dream Theater, good fucking luck. So I would say, but yeah, Dream Theater are a good example of 
the Berkeley sound, but done all in, like all in, and which is different. It, most people aren't going to go all in. I would never go all in on it. And so it would just be like shitty influences coming through me. I think that those guys mastered everything. Okay. And so when they do it, it's not it's not as offensive because I guess they're at the top of their craft. Yeah. And they're also, I'm not like, you know, I don't really listen to them, but they're good at writing. So they know how to make it work. Okay. Yeah. Cause there's another, there's another guy, I think he teaches at Berkeley and he, he play, he plays guitar in a band called Screaming Headless Torsos, but he also plays guitar for Hiromi Uhara. I don't know who that is. Dave Fjorkwitz is his name. I'm pretty sure he teaches at Berkeley or did. But I wouldn't consider him as having the sounds that you're describing either. So maybe it's not necessarily what's being taught, but maybe it's all of the people jamming together. <laughs> or maybe they're all too happy. <laughs> maybe they are. There's always going to be exceptions, and there's always going to be those that have their own take on things. And I do think that no matter what you learn, you can transcend it for sure. For sure. Okay. I would agree. But I don't think that that's true for most people. I think that we're talking about like two people, three people, you know? We're talking about like a tiny, <laughs> tiny, tiny yeah. percentage of people uh, who I guarantee you would have been great regardless. Okay, yeah. I think most musicians, and I mean musicians who are good enough to have a career, are not top, 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 top tier. Like most are ju are just you know pretty good. Yeah, good enough writers, good enough players, good enough. And I think that's where the the I mean, if we take a scale of someone that's a really god awful guitar player, right? And then you have those people that you're talking about that are phenomenal, right? And there's that bit in the middle where they can actually write music and be really really good at the same time you'll actually find that there is a very, very small amount of those. Do you know what I mean? That are good at absolutely everything to do with the instrument and can write music. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, that to me, is still towards the higher end of the bell curve. It is still pretty rare. But I do think that the further away you go from absolute mind-blowing genius, the more susceptible you are to outside influence. So... Unless you're one of those yep. mind-blowing geniuses, I think you need to protect yourself from being influenced by the wrong shit. Like, for instance, I don't like blues. Never liked it. I actually kind of hate it. I didn't want it coming out in my style whatsoever. <laughs> so I didn't learn it. And people could say that that's, you know, self-limiting. But if I don't want that in my style, why would I learn how to do it? Because if I learn how to do it, it's going to come out. You don't like that blues note? I just don't like <laughs> blues, man. <laughs> you don't like any Clapton or anything? Not my thing. Interesting. Okay. I mean, to a degree, even Hendrix had elements of blues in it. Not my thing either. Really? Interesting. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know who I do like? I like Zach Wilde. I like Slash. They have blues playing as their foundation. Yeah, they do. But I don't want to sound like them. I never wanted to sound like them. Like, to me, like, I love Matt Bellamy's style for instance. Yeah, it's really unique, isn't it? Yeah, and you can tell that it comes from classical. His note choice, yeah. he might do like a bluesy thing here and there, but whenever he does that, I feel like that those are his worst moments. <laughs> Mind you, his worst moments are better than most people's best moments. But uh, 
when he goes bluesy, I feel like that is like the least uh, mind blowing of the things that they do. Really? Yeah, I think the classical based stuff is where it's at. All right. I mean, obviously, plug in baby and all those classics, you can hear the harmonic minor of it, <laughs> which just automatically yeah. takes you to the neoclassical thing, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, I hear a legit classical training in their sound, so I kind of relate to that. He plays piano, so, I mean, you can definitely hear it, for sure. Yeah, so how are you finding that people who are in Riff Hard are taking to this rhythm approach? Are you getting any people that used to be, like, lead-only types who have been converted to understanding the importance of rhythm? Like, what, what is it like? Because I'm not doing the one-on-ones. There's definitely been a few of those people, for sure, definitely. Um, I wouldn't say that they only played leads. Obviously, they do play lead and enjoy playing it, and that's, you know, fair play. I used to enjoy playing it all the time, but I just kind of focused on rhythm just because that's what I ended up preferring. But um, I've definitely had comments from people saying that it's definitely improved their phrasing because they're able to understand the subdivision more than what they could previously. And that is, you know... That's the whole point of rhythm. It's the foundation of all music. To play leads, you need to have a grasp of what rhythm is to be able to choose good phrasing that is memorable and catchy, you know, that captures you, I guess is probably a better way rather than catchy. Is there a way to encapsulate how you approach phrasing? I guess the, probably the, the best way to describe it is thinking about Michael Jackson's solo vocal takes and the breaths in the song that he takes are always part of the performance. There's never anything that's out of time or anything. All the little nuances that you can possibly imagine are part of the performance. And that is kind of where I kind of would say is it subliminally came from because I used to listen to Michael Jackson 24-7 when I was two to eight years old. So is it kind of like that saying that it's about the space between the notes? Kind of, yeah. I would actually say, well, obviously Victor Wooten, isn't it? <laughs> With that. Is that who said it? I think so, yeah. It's the space between, well, not the space between spaces. What's that from again? That's a film. <laughs> I, I have no idea. Yeah. Maybe Victor Wooten said it. It's just something that um, I've been hearing for a long time that I kind of agree with, that, that the space, it's not everything, but... If you think about it, like with the with the notes you play, yes, you can play four notes in a sequence that sound really cool, but those four notes by themselves aren't what make the music. It's the rhythmic pattern of those four notes that make the music. And the rhythm will always be there. And the rhythm is probably what, you know, caught your attention to begin with rather than the notes. I mean, if you think about it, like we started music without any tones. It was all just rhythmic. So it is literally the foundation to everything. And that's why we have, you know, quarter tones in, you know, different countries around the world. Stuff like a gamelan that's tuned to itself. And it was always the rhythmic approach that made that music rather than the tonal aspect. The tonal aspect was kind of like an afterthought in a way, wasn't it? Yeah. I, what's interesting to me, I've always thought that in the hierarchy of what's important, it's rhythm first, melody second. Yeah, definitely. 100%. Yeah, harmony third. Mm, yeah, okay, I can agree with all of that. Though the melody does imply the harmony, but not necessarily. Sometimes the melody is just a melody, and and different people will reharmonize it different ways. Exactly. Because 
there's a million different ways to go about it. But I think that rhythm first, because rhythm is what makes you move, but a close second is melody, because melody is the thing that the mailman is going to have in his head when he's walking down the street. Yeah, that makes sense as well. I, I think what it is is that like melody doesn't exist without rhythm at all. Correct. And in order to get a really good melody, like you know, when you listen to a to like think about a song that just gets stuck in your head, it's not necessarily the 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 melody the the, the actual notes that get stuck in your head. It's the phrasing of those notes with the space between yes. them and how they're organized. Whereas you could still get the phrase captured in your head with just rhythm. Yeah, so the context is everything. Like if you think of a, a simple melody, I guess in terms of, if you just think of the notes back to back to back and they were just quarter notes, right? Like yeah. a five note melody that uh, is super catchy from some song. I don't know. I and I don't have one in mind. Actually, a, a really good one that always gets stuck in my head is actually the whistling from the Hunger Games. Those notes. I've never seen that. I mean, it's just a really cool. I think it's four notes, four or five notes melody that they use as. Um, it's like a. It's like a motif that keeps appearing throughout the movie. But yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily the notes in that order that kind of make the music. Because as you say, if you had it as five eighth notes, then it's not yeah. really anything. It's just notes. It's just notes, yeah, but if you make one of those half the length with a gap in the middle, automatically it has a rhythm to it. You know what a, a great classic example is uh, from Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Yeah. The theme that the spaceship plays. Of course, yeah, in different octaves, like, yeah, the part where they meet the aliens. <laughs> yep, uh, that right there is a very, very simple melody. But like the subdivisions are longer and longer as it goes through. Yeah. But it's super simple. But if it was all just like quarter notes, I don't think it would make. I don't know. It would just be like tones. It w it wouldn't be a melody. It would just be tones. Exactly. Yeah. It's the. It's not only the rhythmic pattern, but it's also the length of the note. How long you hold yep. it for, um, and the rest in between the notes. If that makes sense. I think this is also why rap and heavy music with screaming works and connects with so many people is because rhythm connects with people. I think that those styles of music prove that you don't need melody. Though rap will have great melodies, like pseudo-melodies in the beats sometimes. Yeah. The rhythm patterns are what get to people. And it's the same, same with like heavy-ass music with screaming. I remember that Back once upon a time, people used to say to me, well, I can't understand what the person's saying, but I like it for some reason, right? Yeah, I remember those times. I just heard a Slipknot song. I think it's called Nero Forte. Okay. Have you heard it? Um, I, is it on, an, on the new record? On the new one, yeah. I haven't heard it yet. In fact, thank you for reminding me to listen to that record. It's sick. Anyways, in the chorus, it has like a really simple melody that's like four notes, and then Corey does this pattern, this screaming pattern. Like so, it's like note, 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 screaming pattern. Note, 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 different screaming pattern. Note, 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 screaming pattern. Yeah. And who the fuck knows what he's saying? But it's so cool. Like it, it like, and it makes you feel something. You don't even know what he's saying, but you're feeling it. 
I think so, yeah, because if you think about it, like, you know, it's, uh, going back to your point earlier when someone said, I don't understand what he's saying. And it's like screaming has been a part of probably their life with the artists that they've listened to. Like Michael Jackson had screaming in his music. There's no denying that to reach some of the notes that he did, it was literally a scream, just a pitch scream. Mm -hmm. Pitch screams do exist in heavy music too. Of course, yeah, Devin Townsend and many, many other artists do it. Architects. Yeah, good. You know, Sam is right in the top of the top register when he's doing the pitch screaming. But yeah, I mean, it's always been there for a, for a lot of different eyes. Michael Jackson's the only one that I can currently think of. It's in almost every single style of music, even if it's very, very brief. And it's, you know, you hear it when people are trying to reach those notes that they can't hit. hit. Um, it's the raspiness of, you know, certain vocalists as well. Even if it's not necessarily what we consider metal screaming, it's always been there. Um, and it's just a form of expression, isn't it? It's like the difference between playing on a clean sound and playing on a slightly driven sound. It's just a, a different... You're just trying to create a different vibe, but the ultimately it's not really any different other than you're trying to explain something in a different way. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does make perfect sense to me. It's exactly the same as, you know, what we're just talking about with rhythm as well, like rhythm and notes. It's just like a, a, a different way to sort of express it. So, yes, I, I do know exactly what you mean. I also think that the element of rhythm that uh, makes people move is crucial. There's... Uh, there's something about creating a reaction in somebody's body that uh, is super, super powerful. And you can't do that without rhythm. No, you can't. Like, I mean, yeah, fair enough. You could probably play four notes in a certain sequence with the most simple rhythmic passage of just eight notes. And, you know, it might speak to someone because of the way that those notes go together for that person. But it's never going to be a powerful a connection as like say something like a rhythmic passage with the same four notes that's done really, really well. It's just not going to be the same because they'll feel it in their bones with the rhythm and they might just like it in their head with the melody. Yeah. So when you're writing a cool-ass pattern that um, is just banging, where does that come from? It's just whether or not it feels right. You know, when you're listening back to it and it's, does that feel right? Does that sound right? So in Riff Hard, you're showing people how to think about this stuff, but you're not telling them really how to, or are you, uh, how to feel it? Because how do you teach that? You can't teach that. That is, you know, like when in Avatar they say, no one can teach you to see. Yes. It's kind of the same thing <laughs> um, just with, with music. I mean, how do you teach someone to groove? Like you can explain in certain ways, like saying the pocket or, you know, playing slightly behind the metronome to get that sort of bouncy kind of feeling. But you can't teach someone to feel that because have you ever seen a film called Waking Life, actually? Long time ago. So there's one particular section in that that, is, that says words are in a, the sections about the word love. And they're explaining that... Uh, that language when it comes to sort of expressions and personal feelings that it kind of really doesn't explain anything to do with it like the word love like you know do you really understand what that means for me and I think it's the same thing when it comes with certain things in music that just can't be taught and groove is one of those things you just have to 
play with people that do it and then you pick up on it. That brings up the topic that uh, you can never really know what's going on in somebody's head, no matter what, yep. which is kind of sad because uh, no one will ever actually understand you ever, even if they're really close to you. No, no. It's something I've thought about sometimes. It's like, damn, like we're always alone no matter what. Yep. But how that relates to the game of music is this is actually why I always tell producers that if they want to get a point across to a musician, like they want them to change a part, they want to add something, they want the musician to be open to an idea, the best way to do it is to not talk about it, just show them so they can hear it. Because whatever words you use, they're kind of meaningless because you're going to be describing something that you hear in your head that's unique to what's going on in your brain. But they're going to interpret it however the hell they're going to interpret it. And there's no possible way that you're going to mean the same thing. You might be on a compatible level, but there's no way that they're going to understand your words. So show them musically and then let them react to it. Yeah, that's actually it. It's like, yeah, there's no way to really explain it. And even if you do show them, the way that their ears are going to hear what you're hearing are going to be different as well. <laughs> yep. So you better just, I mean, but at least then you can get an honest reaction, right? Then if they don't like it, they don't like it, fine. Yeah. But at least you're giving the idea a chance. Yeah. Because if you're just describing it, what does that even mean? Yeah, I mean, yeah, because it's just words, isn't it? It's actually just, what is it? It's just text doesn't, I mean, the fact that we've had this conversation for an hour and a half now, I don't know if you understood anything that I've said. You don't know if I've understood anything that you've said. What do you mean by that? I'm just kidding. Yeah, I, I never understand what you're saying, though. <laughs> but I think it's the I think it's the accent. I think it might be, yeah. But you you know what I'm saying, like you're yes. saying how words, like the understanding level, is just yeah. I mean, it's quite interesting when you go that deeply, isn't it? But that's kind of what music is. I mean, music is no different than a voice. That's what it is. And trying to play like someone else is not really attainable to a degree. Or mix like someone else. Everyone's ears are built differently. You know, everyone's muscles are built differently to a degree, and the way that someone hits a string is going to be different than the way someone else hits their strings, which is why it's always going to sound ever so slightly different. Like, you can get close, yeah, like 99%, but the real information's in that last 1%, right? It's like the difference between real amps and modelers at the same time. Do you get people at Riff Hard who go through the whole thing thinking that they're going to end up sounding like you, and then they don't, and they're disappointed? No one's told me that yet. Okay, good. I'm glad. That means that you're communicating well with them. I think that like getting to sound like exactly like someone isn't completely possible, but as I say, you can get really close and you can get the essence of it, you know, like like we were saying like earlier about accidentally picking up on certain things song-wise. Like and just accidentally ripping it off, it might not sound the same, but the essence of it's there. Berkeley, blah blah blah. Um, I think that you can get really close. And um, Ollie brought something up um, to me a, a couple of maybe a year ago now. Ollie Steele, the other Monument's guitar player, and he saw a video of the guy that taught me for a couple of years. Um, his name was Owen Vaughan Edwards. Some people might have heard of him. He did some stuff with Andy James for his okay. site a little while ago. 
And yeah, Owen, so I showed a video of Owen playing to Ollie. And when he said the way he picks and the way that he plays is very similar to you. And when I looked at it, it was like, ah, it actually is pretty similar. Like the angle of the pick, the, the way that my hands are on the neck and the, you know, over the strings it was very very similar so i think that to a degree you can get pretty close to how someone sounds hey everybody if you're enjoying this podcast and you should know that it's brought to you by urm academy urm academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Man, I remember once, so Emil used to teach me guitar, and every once in a while, because dude, he's such a good guitar player, uh, even while we were in the band, I'd, I would like be like, hey, can we do some lessons for a month? <laughs> and then I recorded a solo on a record, and he came in and was like, that kind of sounds like me. And I was like, you're right, it kind of does. I don't <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. And not that there's anything wrong with how he sounds. He's great. But uh, it was it was like, yeah, so I took lessons from him, which means I was downloading shit from his uh, skill set into mine. And then six months later, it popped out in a solo. And I had people who would then see us live and say, I didn't know that was... You, I thought that was Amel playing that solo, which I took as a compliment. Actually, it's like a very it's flattering, but uh, I'm nowhere near as good as him ever, or could have ever been. But like that happens. Who you learn from 
it's going to come out in your playing somehow. To a degree, yes. To a degree. I think so too. Even if, even if it's just a short amount of time that you're learning from them, I think that even if you're learning for someone just over the course of maybe even a month to a year, it would come out if you put the time in. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about Riff Hard. How does it make people better? What's involved? So a lot of the exercises are based around left and right hand coordination and focusing obviously a lot on down picking. And now down picking is a technique where you literally hit the string in one direction. <laughs> which is down as opposed to an alternate pick motion you know <laughs> so down picking is when you pick down yeah exactly that's what it is crazy yeah who'd have thought that crazy. right but the main reason for it i mean let's just take a drummer for example this is probably the best way to explain it the drummer two feet on the same kick drum in a recording situation his non-leading foot or her non-leading foot is always going to be weaker and slightly out of time to the other foot and I kind of feel the same way about alternate picking because of the way the string resonates on the guitar. I can't really explain it further than that, but to me, it sounds way more consistent with just down picking. And there's a lot of producers in the world that would probably say the same thing. I agree. Same thing with when a drummer can play a kick drum part on a single kick. If it's possible for him to do it or her to do it with a single kick, it's going to sound consistently tighter than if he's playing or her, she's playing the same part with two feet. Would you agree? Yeah, I would completely agree. There's one thing that would always come up with rhythm tracking, whether it's my own band or me tracking somebody else, is are you down picking that riff? If not, learn. Because <laughs> there's something in the consistency that's just, it's just different. It's just better. And it's really hard to get good at, actually. Yeah. It's something that is, it's a very athletic skill. And it's a skill that kind of goes away if you don't work at it. And I also think that there's a lot of opportunity to injure yourself when you're doing it. So, how do you, so first of all, how do you approach getting people to number one, get better at adopting it? Number two, uh, get consistent with it. Number three, not hurt themselves. The most important thing is like any other thing that you'll do on guitar. Say you're trying to play a really fast lead line, you'd start by playing it slow. And then you would slowly build it over time to make sure that it's tight, consistent and fluid. And it's exactly the same premise as that. Start slow. And with down picking, people have a tendency to tense up because obviously the motion requires all of this a lot more than... Yeah, you start, you start like, I know that Emil and I used to make a thing of down picking everything in Doth, like everything, obviously except for tremolo stuff, but like down pick everything. And man, you know, after a while, your shoulder gets into it, your back gets into it, it like you start to tense and it's like hard and it hurts, and I know that that's wrong, but it is when you're playing a song for six minutes straight and down picking the whole thing, you're barely hanging on for dear life. <laughs> Let me, I, ju I wish I had riff hard back then. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, it's been a technique for a long time, but I mean, even to this day, I still struggle to play Master of Puppets start to finish without stopping. It's hard, really, dude. It's so ridiculously hard to play that song consistently. And imagine the guy sang it at the same time. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah. 
Like he's a god. Like by <laughs> by the time there's there's the you have you know Kirk's solo and then the riff after that, the yeah. kind of uh, I can't really sing it right now because I can't sing, but. That when you get to, by the time you get to that riff and then it stops with a break, at that point my wrist is completely ready to stop. Usually, so someone told me that they read or heard that what he would do is down pick every day first thing in the morning for an hour, just sit there with a metronome and down. Makes sense. I don't know if it's true or not. But I believe it. I believe in doing it through intervals. What do you mean? I think that, yeah, maybe for him that worked. Um, I think doing it in short bursts. He didn't have anything to base it on. No, he though. didn't. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm sure other people downpicked before as like just something that they did here and there. But like, he is like the first one to make it a, like a mainstay. I think so too. So I don't think he really had anything to base it on. So he was probably just going for it without, you know, just the fact that he was doing it for an hour a day was the innovation. Yeah. And to be fair, as long as he wasn't straining while he did it, well, I mean, he can still do it now. So obviously he didn't fuck yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so tell me about the intervals and, uh, and about the down picking gym. So the intervals is short bursts. So do it for like one minute here, speed up the tempo by two beats per minute. Almost like take something like, you know, you go to the gym and you do... You know, let's say you do 10 push-ups and then you stop for a couple of seconds and then do 15 push-ups and then stop for a few seconds or change the momentum of what muscles you're going for, what group muscles. And it's kind of the same thing. It's like instead of just consistently doing it at one tempo, you're constantly trying to push it further by warming up first. Got it. And then going further. That's the premise behind the, the down-picking gym. Obviously, we have warm-up exercises that you should do before that to make sure you at least warm up to a degree some of the muscles in your hands, which, you know, there's a bunch of different exercises depending on what muscle groups you want to focus on. So j just to clarify, the down-picking gym is a section of the Riff Hard site. That's It is, yes, it is. And there is currently, I want to say, probably close to 100 different exercises. In wow, it's that many now. Yeah, I mean, if we include all the, the variations of um, different ones as well, at least, yeah, at least 100. Wow. Yeah, there's years worth of exercises to get through in there, and it's all focusing on slightly different things. Getting better at string skipping while you're down picking, obviously, um, while building up speed, getting better at understanding um, different subdivisions, where you can put rests on different beats of the bar and stuff like that. So how do you recommend people go through it? Because, uh, by the way, at URM we have this issue that, uh, you know, we have a ton of content and... No one knows where to start. Yeah, well, yeah, that that's a problem. And they want to skip to the sexy stuff first. Like, they want to get to, like, parallel compression and shit like that before they know how to gain stage. And so... What we did was we instituted a system of prerequisites where you're not going to get to the sexy stuff until you've gone through mixed prep and gain staging and like EQ fundamentals and compression fundamentals and balance fundamentals and low end yeah. fundamentals. Like you have to go through all that before you get yeah. to the the super sexy stuff. Also, like for instance, we did a fast track with Forrester Savelle about ambience because. 
He's like the king of of ambience and vibe. But in order to be able to do that, you have to go through my basic reverb and delay fast tracks because I don't want you fucking oh, with Forrester stuff until you actually understand how to use a reverb. Yep. Because you're not going to get the same benefit out of it if you skip ahead. It makes sense, yeah. Yeah, you, you just won't. Like imagine if you don't really understand how reverb works. And I don't mean that you have to scientifically understand every single parameter inside and out like a computer, but you basically know what things are going to do. You can at least be like, okay, pre-delay kind of gives it this kind of sound or something. Rate The wet-dry ratio yeah. does this. Uh, like You should know that stuff, right? And so that when yeah. you watch Forrester talk about it in a very elevated, advanced way, like you have some foundation. Yep. So we make people do that. How, how do you make sure that people don't just jump to the end or what? With the down picking, Jim, it's like it's slightly different than that. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty not obvious, but it's no one's going to be able to jump into those exercises and play them at 200 beats per minute unless they've practiced down picking in a different way. There's no way. They'll find that out very, very rapidly <laughs> <laughs> if they try it. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So, like, as far as, like, obviously with yours, with the technicality of understanding the reverb to do this, as long as you can play the fundamentals of guitar, you can sign up to Riff Hard, and I can honestly say that you will notice massive improvements within one week if you just play for 20 minutes. And it's... Not necessarily that you need to necessarily understand to the degree that you're talking about. You are, as I say, you walk in, you play an exercise, you play it slow to begin with because that's what you need to do to learn it. Everyone does that that you know method to learn. Yeah, but the guitar equivalent I mean is like when someone wants to start learning sweeps before they're ready, before their hands even have the dexterity for something like that, and then their sweeps just sound like first note, last note, with like a mess of shit in between, for instance. Let's be honest, we've all done that. We have, that's how I know. <laughs> <laughs> but let's be honest, like, um, you can't do that with this. I mean, with sweeps, yeah, you can move your hand in a motion and try and get someone to down pick at 200 beats per minute. They're literally not going to be able to hit the string. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That fast. So it's a case, they, they will notice that really, really quickly because it won't sound like the exercise at all. With sweep picking, if you hit the first note and the last note, then you can kind of trick your brain into thinking that you've made it. <laughs> <laughs> but with this, you can't because your hand doesn't move that way, if that makes sense. There's literally no way to sort of accurately say that I got that. It's different. Man, you're right, you're right. I, I'm thinking about when... Emil and I would try to downpick new things, new riffs. <laughs> and like, there are just some riffs that just, I just couldn't physically get there. Like, not, I couldn't fake yeah. my way through it. Like, there's solos that sometimes you can fake your way through, but there's no faking yeah. your way through downpicking a riff that's beyond your ability. Like, you'll drop the pick or your handle seize up and it won't be able to move anymore. Or something. Something will happen, yep. like, you're not going to be able to. No, you're not. I mean, obviously, to a degree, like, if you're playing stuff that is, like, faster or as fast as something like Rusty Cooler, you cannot really fake that. 
Like there is a there's a there gets a limit where you kind of need to know how to play. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. But I think that yeah, I mean with the down picking you you're gonna start by learning it slow anyway because you can't jump into it playing it fast, so you've got to learn it. And then it will become pretty apparent that you can either play it at the speed you're going at or you can't. And you'll just feel it here. It's different. It's not like you can tickle the strings like you can. By, by here, for those of you who are listening, he was pointing to his upper arm. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> my upper arm and my forearm, you'll immediately feel it. You'll feel it in there because it will start burning and it will be aching because you've tried to do something that your muscles physically can't do. But when it comes to like sweet picks and a lot of the fast stuff, I mean, you can kind of tickle the strings a lot of the time for that sort of stuff, but you can't really do that with down picking. You kind of have to hit quite aggressively. There's this thing that shitty lead guitar players do where it's supposed to be like, say, an alternate picking run, but they'll just play one hand as fast as possible and the other hand as fast as possible <laughs> and like a flurry of notes will take place. There's one guy that comes into mind when I hear this and he's all over Facebook. Oh, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> I know exactly. <laughs> like that older dude. I think quite a few people will know who exactly the older who I'm guy. talking about. <laughs> yeah, of course. We've all tried to do it. Come on. Of course we have. Want to know what's interesting? So, Kerry King, he doesn't do that, but he sounds like he does that, but he doesn't. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so Kerry King, I kind of consider him a little bit like an outsider music guitar player. Because, <laughs> like, I don't mean this in a bad way, because, like, he has created stuff that helped create the genre that we live off of. But so Doth did, like, a short tour with Slayer. Very short. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hey, we did cool shit. That Roadrunner P. Yeah. The, hey, this was when we were on Century Media. But. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so that's the power of networking, man. I guess you you understand this better than most people that I say this to. But I always tell people that networking is just as important as how good you are. And that's the only way that my band got to do the crazy shit that we got to do because we were tiny. Like, we should not have been on OzFest. We should not have been on tour with Slayer. Like, we should not have done Dragon Force. Like, should not have gone to Japan. Like, all this stuff was because I networked a lot, but whole other topic. But anyways, Kerry King, I remember the sound check was, he just got up on stage and started playing all their songs, just him. And uh, I was like, okay, this is cool. And what I noticed was, first of all, it sounded exactly like the albums, like just him up there playing. And second of all, he played the solos that to someone with a theoretical mind make no sense, but he played them note for note, perfectly accurate to every other time I've heard them, basically. So uh, it's not an accident the way, like it's very, very intentional, which is crazy. Uh, uh, but anyways, that's not the kind of guitar player we're talking about. The kind of guitar players we're talking about have no no accuracy. It's just go as fast as possible with one hand, go as fast as possible with the other. Uh, they're not linked up, but they try to, like they fool themselves with the speed. Exactly. It's like that adrenaline rush because it's like, God damn, yeah, I can play fast. And it's like, that is fucking shit. It is shit. But I guess you're right. You can trick yourself with that. You can't trick yourself with rhythm. No, because a drummer will just look at you thinking this guy is fucking shit. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Same with the bass player to a degree, actually. And normally in metal, the bass players are quite, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say bad, but they're not the same sort of standard as your gospel or your your pop guys. Do you know what I mean? They're not in the groove, the pocket. Yeah, uh, they're typically failed guitar players. That's why. Or their their mates at school just asked them if they wanted to play bass, and they were just like, "Yeah, that's just one finger in it." <laughs> Man, but let me tell you, when you find an awesome bass player in metal who like actually takes the craft seriously, it is a godsend. Let's be honest, though, the guitar player would still record it. <laughs> You're right, ninety nine percent of the cases, but I can think of. Two cases where that didn't happen. Okay. Didn't happen in Battlecross. Okay. That bass player, Don Slater, I, they're not active anymore. He was fucking incredible. And uh, okay. in my band, Jeremy Creamer, we let him play because he kind of just, it's like a real bass player. It wasn't just like a like a shitty, dumbed down guitar player who hits like a wuss. Like, But it's so, so rare. So yeah, sometimes the bass players will look at you weird, but at the same time, most of them won't even know what the hell's going on. No, they probably won't. They probably had a couple of beers before the show. Yeah. (laughs) So tell me about some of the other features on Riff Hard. Yep. I want to talk about it some. I want people to know about this because I know a lot of you listening are producers. Um, I know a lot of you are guitar players too, but if you're not a guitar player and you're just a producer... You have to record guitar players, and you know the pain of (laughs) dealing with guitar players who can't play. And I, as a guitar player, had an easy way to solve that problem. I would just play it when they went home. But (laughs) if you don't have those skills, then let's get real. You need them to have those skills. And uh, this is a resource you can use to help them get better. For sure. Definitely. So that's why it's relevant. Let's talk about the other sections of the site. Then we have something called Riff Rescue. And what that is, is every once a month, I will go on a live stream and take a student's riff or song and basically do what I would do songwriting wise to their parts to see if we can take it in different directions that they hadn't thought of or to make the riff better from my perception but it's a cool uh, live stream that you can basically see the entire process that I would go through for any Monuments or Flux Conduct song as well. Interesting so I think that what's beneficial about that is I, I feel like a lot of people when they're writing they go with the first draft. This is some, <laughs> I, I was guilty of this a lot and I feel like when I'm critiquing people's songs and and you know and with bands i've recorded i feel like that's what i'm hearing like have you ever noticed like when you're writing that you'll start writing and you'll have riff one yeah kind of cool riff two kind of cool riff three whatever and then somewhere later like maybe riff four like the light bulb turns on and then you have something fucking awesome and in my opinion that's actually riff one and everything before it is garbage delete it don't delete it no 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 no. that's a terrible way well no no okay don't fine don't fine don't delete it but that's riff one anyways in my opinion yeah riff one is like where the light bulb comes on if you don't want to delete it don't delete it there's a reason for not deleting we'll get into that in a second (laughs) but my point is though that people just go with the first draft of stuff 
they don't write until the light bulb turns on and like their creativity has like engaged. And then also they don't take riffs that could be awesome with just some extra effort and make them awesome. And I think it, sometimes it's a lack of vision. Yeah. Like a lot of people will just accept things the way they are. Like they'll create it and just accept it. It is what it is. But then also they might just not know what to do. That's the other thing as well. Yeah, there's there's a cu- bunch of different reasons as to why people don't finish what they're doing. Or just present mediocre versions of what it could be. Exactly, which is, you know, in the olden days, when I say olden days, it's because it's merged into every other, uh, you know, one guy does the whole job now, but that's why you had producers. Like, you would have these band members that would bring in these sort of unfinished riffs. <laughs> Yeah, and then the and then the producer will be like, "Oh, that's cool," and that's why you know bands would go into the studio with twenty, thirty songs, so that the producer could scrap all the garbage, which might even be all thirty songs. <laughs> Sometimes it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I I think maybe it's not necessarily a lack of vision or a lack of this. It's just that they've not been put in a situation where they really know or understand how to create the finished product. The way I'm understanding what you're saying, and tell me if this is what you mean, I see writing as half art, half craft. Kind of like mixing is half art, half science. I believe that writing is part art, part craft. The art part is the creative spark, like the channeling of your feelings into something unique. But then the craft is everything you do after to turn it into a song and to refine it. Yeah, so that's what I mean. Like, you know, some people don't have the ability to record themselves. That's automatically a problem because they won't be able to hear kind of along the lines of what it sounds like with bass, guitar and drums unless they jam in a room with a bass player and a drummer. And even still then, it doesn't really give them the vision of what it will actually sound like as a polished, finished product. So... I think that to a degree it's all kind of merged into one now because you would have a producer telling you what to do. So, yeah, in a way, a producer was the sound of a lot of those bands to a degree. Yep. Because it would be quite interesting to hear the the demos of some of this stuff before the producers got their hands on it because I have no doubt in my mind that some of the producers probably fucked it up, but at the same time, they just basically refined what was there because, you know... Back, especially back yeah. in you know the in the seventies or eighties, it wasn't you, people didn't really record themselves as much as like now, where you can literally get drag yourself out of bed in your underwear, and then you know drag your ass upstairs, and within ten minutes you can have a verse recorded down if you wanted to have it recorded. So yeah, I think that it's a la- sometimes it's a lack of understanding, sometimes it's complete laziness that they don't want to finish the riff. They just go with the first thing that they wrote because what they're writing music for might not necessarily be the same thing that we write music for. Yeah, one thing that's really crucial, I think, was that I didn't start getting much better until I started recording myself. Exactly. It was like meteoric how much better I got once I started recording myself. That is a really important thing that we enforce 
over well I do at Riffar just uh, because when you're playing the instrument you're not really taking in the information you're not hearing it from the other perspective and also uh, oftentimes you know you're hearing pick noise you're like you're hearing things that can fool you like I know certain people who when they're down picking it's so loud that that like the combination of that pick noise along with what was coming out of the speakers makes it sound more intense than it actually is. Exactly. And you there's an element of fooling yourself when you're sitting there playing. Can't accurately judge. And the moment that you put yourself to a metronome in a recording studio, that's when you can really tell if you're good or shit. But then again, there is definitely some leeway in that as well because some days you just can't play to the metronome. <laughs> yeah. That happens to you? Oh yeah, there's some days when I know that I've played everything that we just paid for the studio time really badly. Okay, so tell me about not deleting riffs. Yeah, we should talk about that. Why? So basically, if you think a riff is shit, you shouldn't delete it because what is it that makes it shit? Is it the rhythm? Is it the melody? But if you think about it, you could return back to that riff in like a three weeks, a month, two years time and think, and it sparks something that then creates something monstrous from it. Oh, okay. I get you. I just meant delete from that song. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just don't press delete. You just move it to a later part of, yeah. the, of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. I, I completely agree. What I meant was when the light bulb turns on in your head and you hit that flow and you have your first great moment, that's what you should consider the beginning of the idea. Whatever came before it, that was just kind of like you just basically getting warmed up uh, yeah, sure. Put it in a folder somewhere, save it. What I'm trying to get at is it doesn't have to be in that song just because you wrote it first. Of course. There's no rule with that. You should be very, very comfortable with taking elements out. Uh, I just think people get too attached to their own ideas. They definitely do. I mean, I've got a perfect example of a riff that was on Gnosis that didn't make the song and then it ended up being on the amanuensis which was what uh, i finished well gnosis came out in 2012 amanuensis came out in 2014 but i wrote the riff in like 2009 so five years from when it was initially written to the song it ended up being in because it's just about labeling the projects that you have when i'm saying not delete riffs just Leave it there because if you said you got your first great moment was the fourth riff, but it took you three riffs to get there, and those three riffs were the basis of what became and made it great. So don't delete anything, and it might just spark an interest for something else that will come later. Good idea. So basically, back to the riff rescue idea, you're helping give them the skills to self edit basically and squeeze the potential out of their ideas. I wouldn't say self-edit. It's about trying to manipulate the idea that they have. I mean edit in the way that a book editor does. Not oh, like yeah, edit. Of course. Not edit like beat detective, but edit the way a book editor does. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So like imagine like the the way I sort of break it down is trying to break it down into memorable little phrases. So say they've got a really complicated riff that's kind of all over the place but doesn't really do anything. Um, try breaking it part down into the memorable sections. And when I say memorable sections, I think of um, what we were talking about earlier, like Michael Jackson and the and you know just like a a four note sort of little motif. You know, like, 
I'm just trying to think of it, you know, just even the words beat it, the way that it was sang, you know, it's quite catchy. And trying to break down the riff into multiple little sections. So then you have these little motifs to play with and then you can start ordering them in different orders and really changing what that riff was whilst at the same time retaining all the information of it so it's not too far away from the original idea. So I actually learned about never introducing new music until you've referenced it from my music teacher and it's a pretty common thing. What do you mean? So my music school teacher when I was in school I must have been 15 at the time and it was when I was just doing what we were talking about earlier where I was just trying to shred as fast as I could playing the first and the last note thinking I was great and she said you you shouldn't introduce any new music or any parts of music until it's been referenced before and in a lot of classical pieces you know a lot of the oh oh when writing yeah you shouldn't just bring a new idea completely out of left field it should be based off of what uh what came before in the song i mean to a degree i mean yes like but obviously there are situations when it works when you go to a completely other idea but generally what i found when it comes to writing music for people is that they just get really stuck on where to go next and it's like all the information's already there for you in the riff you've just written let's just try and break it down and then try and create other things from it like a perfect example of this idea done in a way and I'm, I'm going to suggest this just because uh, it's a lot easier to comprehend than, say, on a Monument song where the stuff that you reference sometimes, and I know this because of that creative live class we did together, <laughs> but uh, I know that, like, by the way, yeah, John and I did a creative live class called uh, Metal Songwriting, I believe that's what it was called. It was 2013 or 2012, wasn't it? Long yeah, time ago. 13, 14, something like that. It was a while ago. But uh, so I know that you will take like three notes that are part of like a phrase and then take those three notes and that'll become something later. And so sometimes, even though your songs all sound like a cohesive unit, um, I think that it's very, very complex if you've never thought about this before. So a really good song to to analyze for this exact topic is Time is Running Out by Muse because it basically has one or two ideas throughout the whole song, but they're just presented in different arrangements, in different ways, always interesting. And everything is based off of those central themes. And it's a way that it's a three-minute song that's just perfect and it's not based on eight million different ideas. It's not a riff salad. No, but those riffs are monstrous. Let's be honest, though, that is a big problem with a lot of progressive metal. <laughs> well, I think they just write riff after riff after riff after riff, and there's nothing really... Bring them together. Yeah. It's like, yeah, soup without bread, if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so, so by referencing, you mean kind of like the way that uh, in writing, uh, you know, scripts or stories, foreshadowing. I guess to a degree, I mean, I guess the best way to explain it is imagine you're listening to Nirvana's Nevermind, Smells Like Teen Spirit, right? And the guitar solo is literally just the vocal, right? Yes. We see that a lot, you know, with like different parts being played on different instruments, but you can manipulate these riffs further. Say you had four notes that you really like the sound of in a particular order in your scale. You can play those four notes in many different ways. The easiest one would be to play it in a different octave. And that automatically gives a different 
timbre and a different meaning to those four notes. It's like the difference between me speaking to you and me screaming at you. I might be saying the same words, but the expression is different. And it's little things like that and building up all those different layers of that. So trying it in different octaves, we could try the same four notes in a different position within the same key. So when I say different position, I mean, let's just say that I was playing like a uh, a minor sixth into a, a fourth into a fifth uh, into a minor third, right? Let's just see if anyone can envision that right now with the interval training. <laughs> I can. And then I could just play that in a completely different point of the scale where the intervals are loosely the same, but it's not, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So it's like, instead of I, me playing the major sixths, I start on the minor third. Mm -hmm. And then I do minor third root into the second, into what would be the sixth. Then does that make sense? Absolutely. I'm playing like the same pattern. Like my hand pattern won't change for that one. It's if I'm in a minor key, um, my the actual pattern will be exactly the same. It's just in a different part of it. So it creates a different, you know, a different meaning because it's technically the different notes, but you've used all the information from the previous passage. So the only thing that you've changed is well, you've changed the notes, but the actual rhythmic element and the interval element is the same but there's many examples that i do this on and it just like changes completely everything about it but at the same time you've remained the you've sort of kept the same information and we see this sort of stuff happening a lot with film music like you know how they'll play uh, motifs in the major key to describe that they're happy in the minor key for sad in the diminished scale if they're it's mysterious or they're asking a question or something like that. You know what I mean? Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's just trying to manipulate these parts in as many different ways as possible to make as many different variations of possible so that then you can create finished cohesive songs. And we, we do see this in a lot of other musics. I mean, if you think about it, like when uh, in a lot of pop music, there'll be like a first verse that doesn't have a guitar in it and then they'll start adding different yep. layers of instruments. And instead of layering the different layers of instruments, we're just layering different parts of the song so it's all cohesive. Freak on a Leash by Korn, the song, is a okay. perfect example of this. I'm So I'm purposefully picking simple songs. Okay. Because if this is a new concept to people, these are very easy ways to understand. Because the way that, because the way you do it is like hyper advanced. <laughs> it's because it's, I'm not trying to trying to trick people or anything like that. No, no. I'm just. Not, it's dude, just the is, way my brain works. This is a technique that's used by the best writers in the world, and I think part of why yeah, exactly. part of why people like your writing is because you use like tried and true writing techniques, regardless of how complex or crazy your music is, it's still grounded in good songwriting principles. And a lot of people, let's face it, uh, who write in heavier styles do not understand these principles. And so like they do, like you said, riff salad. It's just riff after riff after riff after riff. And hey, sometimes it's cool, but generally it's not. Uh, generally it'll work for a song and then, you're over it because you could interchange one part of one song with another part of another song and it wouldn't make any bit of difference, no identity. So Freak on a Leash by Korn 
you should analyze that one too because it, like, listen, for instance, listen to the chorus every different time that they bring it in and what changes about it. Just listen to it, write down what you're hearing. Chorus one, chorus two, and chorus three. Notice also how much of an impact it has by the third chorus when it's fucking slamming. Now imagine if the arrangement from the third chorus happened the first time. Well, to put it bluntly, they'd blow their load in the first 45 seconds of the song <laughs> as opposed to having the climax exactly. at the end of the song, which is hard to do because there's some killer riffs in that song. Uh, like The middle section has one of the best heavy riffs of all time, I think. And to follow <laughs> that up with something that slams even harder is not easy. But it would have not happened at all had they taken the arrangement from the third chorus and played it earlier. So the, the song constantly rises in intensity. Are you familiar with the song? I am. I'm just trying to sing it in my head, but I'm, I haven't slept. <laughs> For some reason, I keep getting Adidas into my song. Yeah, well, that, head, actually, sorry. this is why I looked it up, because I was going to say Adidas. And I was like, that's not the song. That's not the song. There's actually a really, there's another good example of this. It's a lot simpler that people will be able to hear. But it's Gajira Stranded as well, the verses for the arrangement where they they add even just the smallest amount to the second chorus, second verse. Mm -hmm. And it's the big chord, you know, like it starts off with with a different chord. But by the second verse, it's that wow, wow. And then they're doing the, you know, the the sixteenth note chugs, um, and it's got that big chord, and that's the only thing that they change. But it makes it even something that small just makes that verse more interesting than just repeating the same thing. Yep, I was gonna say another good example: uh, the Leper song below, which is okay. a really new one. If you listen to the difference between verse one and verse two, okay, it's very very clear. I mean, with the, with this sort of, I mean, another actual good one actually of playing the same part. Let's just go into film music here. Is the difference between the original Jurassic Park main theme tune and when the main theme is played in the newest one, Jurassic World? Well, it's not the newest one anymore, I don't think. But yeah, Jurassic World when they visit the old visitor center, and it plays the Jurassic Park theme tune on just a piano. Mm-hmm. That is showing the different level of variation that you can have. And something as simple as, you know, I think it's even in the minor key versus the major key of the original one. Yeah, absolutely. So what else is on the site? We have one-on-ones with me. You get to talk with me face-to-face about anything at all that you want. Nearly everything that you want. (laughs) Nearly. We have either create a section which talks about songwriting, which goes on further from what we're talking about on Riff Rescue, basically just more organized for people that want to learn about songwriting. Riff dissections. Oh yeah, we do. We have riff dissections as well, which is basically breaking down all of um, the monuments, flux conduct, um, riffs, so that you can see not only how to play them, but also how they were written. They were, they're broken down into different sections as well so that you can actually get the mechanics of the riff and also be able to see how the actual riffs were written. Yeah. We also have King of the Riff, which is one of my favorite sections on the site, because that involves the people on there and they write to a brief that I give them every month. So give us an example of what what that is. What's the brief like? 
So briefs range in different intensities, so to speak. So, for example, one month I asked them to write something musically tasteful in the Locrian key. All right. (laughs) The Locrian mode, which to me is, because it doesn't have the fifth in it, it never sounds finished. Yeah. There's only really one example that I can give that is written in Locrian, and it sounds completely wrong, but it's awesome. And it's Bjork's Army of Me. I will check it out. Dude, that was like massive and it's like it's so it sounds so wrong but so right at the same time (laughs) so yeah that was one thing we got to do um for one month so what happens you say you give them this set of guidelines and then what and then i will choose a top 20 who i believe have followed the brief to the absolute and have made the best songwriting describing that brief and then from that 20 it goes into a live poll for the riff hard community and they will win um a prize uh, the winner and a runner-up there'll be a prize each that they can win and we've had prizes from driftwood amplification hughes and kettner solar guitars dr strings loads of brands basically yeah and this month it's uh we have neural dsp there is just good guitar shit everything yeah i mean we've well yeah we've had interfaces from audient as well yeah so give me an example of another brief uh, another brief something a little bit more simple was to describe through music what the word alien means to you interesting so then we start getting into writing to certain situations and certain scenarios and certain words and what it what it would be for you to you know describe that through music because if you think about it music is just a form of speech so that that's really interesting. So it's not just like write a song in the style of Lamb of God. No, there, we do do that occasionally because obviously that's fun. So it could be. Yeah. I guess what I'm getting at is is it's not just that. Like it might be one month, okay, write us a sick-ass song in the style of Lamb of God with their kind of particular idiosyncrasies, but... It's not just stuff like that. It's stuff that will challenge you in different ways. Like, I just thought about that. Like, just write something that describes the word alien, huh? All right. That's a cool challenge. Yeah, right. But the first thing that you would think of when you did that is to probably watch the film Alien, which wasn't really the idea of it. But just as an example for that month, the most simple song that was written was the one that won it because it was just a singular clean guitar whereas all the other ones had drums and bass and everything but the effects that were on the guitar it was just clean guitar with loads of delay loads of refurb and it sort of captured this eerie sort of feeling and that's the one that won so it wasn't necessarily that it had to be complicated it was just trying to progress each of the people's songwriting basically that's really cool um another one actually i mean we we do stuff that like goes a bit weird and you know we i think there was one where i asked for them to play um a song where they utilize both the minor and major third and the minor and major seventh interesting Uh, i could see to me that would be really easy that's that's like the easiest one so far of course yeah but we have to i mean getting the flat fifth or the sharp and fourth in there as well would be quite funny (laughs) These will work out your creative muscles for sure. 
it's basically just trying to make people feel uncomfortable in the best possible way, you know, um, trying to write to things that they might not necessarily have thought about. Just something a little bit different, like, to so their brain works in a different way. They pick up different muscle memories from trying different things. It's just constantly trying to stimulate while having fun. That sounded wrong, right? <laughs> no, that's great. So it's not, <laughs> it's not just, like, techniques and exercises. There's, like, you're looking at it from... Uh from a holistic standpoint, I think. Of course, yeah, just trying to basically just improve in every possible way while making it fun as well, because obviously, you know, no one really wants to sit there and do exercises all day, so let's do some fun shit as well, which for me, the King of the Rift section is the fun shit because there is sort of an end goal at the end of every single month as well. It, like, you know, get to see people get some amazing things that, you know, they'll be stoked to have that, you know, at the end of the month. I mean, there was one guy that won three different things off of Riff Hard because his songwriting, just for those particular months, were voted for by the community. And he ended up winning a Line 6 Helix, a Solar guitar, and a Laboga head. So he practically won an entire... Jesus. Yeah, he won an entire rig just because, yeah, just because he killed it. That's literally it. Wow. Who was it? It's a guy called Charlie Nevitt. And he actually is a, a video effects editor, funnily enough. Well, good job. That's that's impressive. We have some people like that on Nail the Mix, actually, who have won multiple times because they're just killing it. Yeah. Yeah. It'll happen. Yeah, of course. And, you know, uh, fair play to him. You know, he definitely deserved it. And it wasn't... I mean, I picked the top 20, yeah, but it's not actually voted for by me. It's voted for by the people on Riff Hearts yep. so that it is a completely... And it's always anonymous as well. We do it anonymously so that there is no bias. It's literally about the music. That's what it should be about. Yeah. It's not about what people are like. It's literally just, does this follow the brief? Yeah, perfectly. To the absolute. There's another section that I think is really important that uh, talks about tone. Ah, yes, we have the tech vault. And I don't mean tone necessarily like part that comes from gear. It's more about how to create that tone with how you play. Yeah, so it's like goes into stuff like posture. In fact, funnily enough, I had a one-on-one -on -one today with a guy and he was saying that he wasn't able to do some of the exercises because he was tensing so hard on his right arm and I, I found out that he was actually sitting on the end of a bed while trying to do these exercises and immediately it's like well, your posture is going to be terrible. Yeah, good luck with that one. Just try standing up. If you've got nowhere else to sit, just stand up with your guitar. Get it at a comfortable level where you feel comfortable. Make sure that you're breathing well and that your posture's straight. That's part of it. It's not just playing the guitar. I mean, if you think about it, you're literally running, but with your hands. <laughs> when it comes to playing guitar, it's doing pretty weird things um, with your hands that aren't really normal. Like playing drums as well as like... You know, drummers have to be probably fitter than most athletes do to be able to do what they do for an hour, an hour and a half. And it's no real different for a guitar player. So when you're hunched over your, your bed or your, you know, your computer desk, you're probably doing worse things for your body than you really realize. And yeah, that section kind of goes into posture, breathing and stuff like that. Well, you know that cliche that is absolutely true, the tone is in the hands. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that, that that's something that, a lot of people don't understand that when you have a sick tone on a record or live, yeah, sure, the cabinet and the EQ make a big difference, but, 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 the end of the day, that is what it, that guitar player sounds like. like exactly. No matter 
the scenario, like no matter where you put them, that's what they're going to sound like. The essence of it is coming out of the guitar. And that's a very, very hard thing to understand till you've experienced it. But if guitar players hear their own recordings and it, they don't have that, that tone, that really awesome guitar players do, often I think they'll trick themselves into thinking that, well, it's just because they go to a good producer or I just don't have money for the rig. And it's like, no, buddy, it's you. You're picking wrong. You're <laughs> sitting wrong. There's something in how you hold the guitar. You don't know how to hit the string the right way to get the right kind of tone. It's the same with drummers. It's like every other instrument, but drummers obviously being an acoustic instrument, it's more noticeable than a guitar that's covered in a wall of distortion. But the way they hit the, that particular drum, do you know what I mean? Man. There is certain drummers that hit the drum just exactly right, and it doesn't matter what drum kit they're playing on, it sounds exactly like them. They hit the drum in their perfect way. Yeah, absolutely. I've actually done this before where... Um just because of time considerations, there's been uh, two different drummers from two different bands using the exact same setup with the exact same mics, everything the same, two different records, and the drum sounds were completely different. And nothing in the gear changed. <laughs> like, nothing. The same drums, the same heads. Like, everything was the same. The mics were not moved. Nothing changed except the drummer. And... The yeah. the sounds couldn't be more different. They couldn't be. There's an example of this as well from us. We played a live show before Mike rejoined, and he filled in for Regenerate on the live show. And we still had Lango at the time, and there is a complete difference. And that is with the same kit in the same situation on the same show, and you can hear it from the recording. The difference because it's two different drummers. And if if hitting, uh, you know, if that's going to make that much of a difference with a the drummer, then it's going to make even more difference with a guitar player. Do you know what I mean? Because you're going to be all the different notes, the, the level in which you press the fret, there's more. Do you know what I mean? It's not just, it's hitting it versus how the pressure applied from two different areas. So it's ever so slightly different when it comes to guitar. Yeah. You're not only got to hit the string hard with your picking hand, but it's also the pressure that's applied with your left hand and how you fret the notes. And it's all coming into play with how you sound as a guitar player. And have you noticed that some people just automatically sound sharp when they're playing the guitar? Just everything just sounds sharp. Or they play a chord and it sounds out of tune and then you pick up the guitar and then you play the chord and it's fine. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I remember this one situation I had. I was recording a record. And this record actually was back when I was mixing, uh, people considered to be the best guitar tone I ever got. And I love the guitar tone on it. But this is a very annoying situation because there's one guy in the band who was phenomenal guitar player, other guy who was just mediocre. But the phenomenal guitar player was a very like people-pleasing kind of guy and conflict-averse. And uh, so I was like, dude, you need to be playing all the rhythms. And when it came time to do this one song, he just left. <laughs> like, he didn't even, like, his way to get out of doing it because he didn't want to offend the other guitar player was he just left so that I couldn't make him do it. <laughs> 
So I had to record the other guitar player. And we got through it. Didn't sound so good. And when he got back later that night, he was like, why does this sound different than the other songs? Like, that's not what it's supposed to sound like. It's like, dude, I told you. It's because you need to be playing it. <laughs> you, it's like, when are you going to believe me? I think a good example of this as well is the, the, the creative live we did with you, with Quasimodo. Yes. Like, Ollie's a really good guitar player, and I'm, I'm not saying he's not, but what it is is that just two guitar players going through the exact same rig are going to sound completely different from, than one another. That's ultimately what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Man, that was an interesting day. That, that was a very, very interesting yeah, it day. Was. If you've seen the Monuments Boot Camp that we did with Creative Live, then you know what I'm talking about. I mean, if you don't, uh, the scenario was this. We, were try- we had gear to record guitars, and I don't remember what it was, and I'm not going to mention what it was. We spent a long time trying to get a tone, like, all day. It was okay, but it wasn't that great. And, like, I remember that you were having trouble playing on it. Like, yeah. it was just not jiving with you. So th- we tried Ollie. He was a little more comfortable with it, but it just didn't sound like Monuments. And I got an amp delivered at 6 a.m. the next day. And we got the tone in 30 minutes. And then you tracked the whole song in 45 minutes. Was it really that quickly? <laughs> it was that quick. Yeah. Maybe an hour. It was, it was that quick. And it sounded like Monuments, it, which is crazy. I have this uh, theory or opinion that guitar tone shouldn't take a long time. If you're not somewhere cool in the first 10 to 15 minutes... It's going to be dog shit. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying you can't refine it. Like if you try a rig... You're not somewhere good after 10 to 15 minutes. Time for trying something new, basically. I agree. I would actually say probably even less time than that. Yeah, I was being generous. Yeah, because like your ears are going to be shot after playing an amp at a really loud volume after about a minute. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, you don't you? I mean, like it's like how you judge people. You know in the first 15 seconds generally if you're going to get on with that person. It's the same with an amp. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty much true. <laughs> Well, John, I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you, as always. Thank you for having me. Always great chatting to you, mate. Of course. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at Levy URM Audio, And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.